Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. Welcome to today's New Books Network in Folklore. I'm your host, Yadong Li, a PhD student in anthropology at Tulane University. Today, I will talk with the author of a truly legendary book. I see it is legendary for two reasons. First, I think it is a fantastic book with both readability and academic depth. Second, it is really a book about urban legends and legend tripping. This new book, If You Should Go at Midnight, Legends and Legendary Tripping in America, is published by the University Press of Mississippi. And thank you for coming, Professor Davis Cowell, or Jeff. Thank you so much for having me and for that great intro. Oh, I think the pleasure is all mine. So I'm very excited to chat about this book with you. So Jeff is Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of New Haven. His research interests are diverse, but basically I think he focuses on investigating the physical and virtual environments in which social life occurs. He studies regional tourism, punk music, and urban legends. So Jeff, I know you earned a PhD degree in sociology from Ohio State, and I read your part of your dissertation. It's about punk music, punk culture, and the significance of space in punk culture. So could you please give us some information about your research journey and tell us why from punk music to beer market then to legend tripping? <laughs> yeah, if you were to just look at uh, the the papers that I've published, the books that I've published, it might not be immediately obvious what ties them all together, but I think you just described it pretty well. Uh, you know, I got stuff on punk rock, on beer marketing, on urbanism, and of course, paranormal beliefs and urban legends. But that common thread all has to do with space in place, the physical environment, and the social significance of that. So uh, specifically to answer your question, when I was doing most of my work on punk, and I still do a little bit here and there, but I was primarily interested in, you know, not its music, not its style, like a lot of people have studied, but the spaces that it occupies. So I was investigating underground music venues, and I was really interested in how their culture and their architecture influenced and affected each other, especially relative to, to mainstream norms and culture and architecture, like you might see at like a big concert, like in an arena or something like that. So the, the emphasis on, on place is always there. And the urban legend study is kind of similar in some ways, actually. Uh, let, me, let me give you an example. Not too far away from uh, where I live here in Connecticut, there's this little path through the woods. Looks like a nature trail if you're out. You know, there's trees, there's flowers, uh, nothing that special about it, but it's pleasant. However, there's also a lot of legends about it, a lot of claims about bizarre creatures and ghosts and aliens and all sorts of other things. And so two people experiencing the same location might actually experience very different places. One person just experiences this you know, pretty trail through the woods. The other, with all these legends in their head, might see something in entirely different. They might experience something different because of all this. So in other words, again, there's that sociocultural dimension to it, the, the legends they transform this environment into something seemingly quite different. Uh, and this is something that sociologists sometimes are a little uncomfortable with because my discipline hasn't always really cared about physical space, unlike, say, geography or something like that. Uh, so the other element is that, conversely, there are locations where maybe two people will have similar experiences, even though neither of them are familiar with the legends, or one is and one isn't. And that's when the environment itself speaks to them in such a way that it suggests the uncanny. Well, thank you for sharing with us your very interesting academic background and also the connection between your different, I think, academic projects. I can see the connection is about space and location. 
And now I think it's time for us to turn to the topic of your new book. So it is a book about urban legend and legend tripping. So I think most of our audience may know what urban legends are. I think at least everyone knows the story of Vanishing Hitchhiker and, you know, Jan Harald Bruven as a folkloristic, he's also a public figure. But what is Latin tripping and why is this cultural phenomena important to us? Yeah, I agree. I think pretty much everyone has probably heard at least one urban legend, probably many more. But I think a lot of us aren't actually all that familiar with what they consist of and how they work. There's really no reason we should be, despite that repeated exposure. And urban legends, or I just call them legends, are, are kind of weird, actually. They're one of the strangest forms of uh, discourse that I believe we have. Uh, a legend, we have to understand before we get to the legend tripping, in other words. So legends are defined as basically claims about something that happened in the past that might be true. So the story is told as though this thing might have happened. The teller isn't really sure. The audience isn't really sure on that or a lot of the details. And we could compare that to like a fairy tale, which makes no pretensions to being true, or history, which is the opposite, right? This should be more or less mostly true to the best of our knowledge. And legends are kind of situated in the in the middle there in some strange ways. They tend to make really bizarre claims, often supernatural, but not always. They have engaging content. Uh, sometimes there might be like a threat or a danger they're warning you about. And they're incomplete. They're not actually really stories at all. They, they're fragmentary in a lot of ways. So because of all these reasons and some other ones, they, they tend to grab the listener's attention and they make, you, they make you really think about it and wonder in a way that maybe some other forms of discourse aren't quite as well suited for. Uh, they also tend to offer ways to experience those claims yourself. In other words, they have a direct participatory component uh, that you could engage in if you so choose. That's where the legend tripping comes in. They're, they're clearly very closely related to each other. Maybe we'll get into this a little bit more later. But you could also think of the legend tripping component as sort of the, the behavioral part of the legend process, or maybe action that a listener might take in response to a legend that they heard. Because of all these strange characteristics, they, they want to learn more about it. They want to fill in some of those blanks. They want to see if the outlandish claim is true, or maybe they want to prove that it's not. There's actually a lot of ways that we can engage with them. Uh, but in any case, uh, we could think about, for example, maybe you've heard a claim that something happened in that house down the street and now it's haunted for some reason. And if you do X, Y, Z during a full moon at midnight, you could get the ghost to appear. And so people might be tempted to put that to the test, even if, you know, even skeptics might be tempted to put that to the test, if for no other reason than to, you know, disprove it or to, you know, see if there's any element of truth to it at all. And there's a lot of reasons why this is important, both the legends and the legend tripping. Uh, not the least of these, I think, is because, well, it's popular. Whenever a lot of people are concerned with something, well, sociologists become interested in it too, because essentially it's become quite mainstream. Uh, it seems to be spreading through a number of different uh, venues, such as popular media. And, and again, we've all experienced these one way or another anyway. So it's not like this is actually a fringe area of, of, of concern, although it's not one we think about anymore. It's also transformed in ways that make it important. So for example, legend tripping's actually become big business. There's ghost tours all over the place, for example. Uh, there's TV shows that that portray legend tripping and uh, a lot of other reasons. But another one that comes to mind immediately is that legend tripping and legends in general, they affect us. They affect our behaviors. Sometimes these behaviors become problematic as when legend trippers cause problems or experience problems because of their behavior. And we could also think about connections to other forms of discourse like 
uh, rumors or misinformation or conspiracy theories, if we start to understand how the legend process works, we actually get a better view into some of those other uh, vagaries uh, of human communication, discourse, and behavior. Well, thank you for explanation. I think it's a very useful explanation for many audiences. So I just think about a question. It's like, so although as legend tripping is a recent phenomenon, a cultural phenomenon uh, attracting attention recently, but basically I think the action part is always related to legends because sometimes we know the legend of Bloody Mary and people will do some experiment, you know, just at home. So do you think it is also part of legend tripping, but, you know, it's not that recent? Yeah, absolutely. The the serious study of legend tripping and the name, they only go back to the 70s. But I think we see documentary accounts of this going back pretty much as long as there have been accounts of human behaviors, especially if we kind of open ourselves to a wider array of things that might count as legend trippy than, you know, strictly haunted houses or something like that. Uh, the Bloody Mary example that you just gave, yeah, that's a, that's an old one, right? And it very much is a form of legend trippy, one that you don't even need to leave the house to perform, but it follows very much the same logic. So now I want to turn to methodology and your writing process. So basically, how do you write a book of legend tripping? So I can say this book is based on both participant observations and extensive textual visual material, both online and offline. So. I think as a reader, you can see so many valuable pictures in your book. To rephrase my question, how do you balance these data sources and finally produce this book? Yeah, so pretty early on in the process when I was working on this, I figured out that I wasn't going to be able to focus on just a, a single type of data. Uh, traditionally, legend tripping studies tended to focus on things like uh, interview data with a single case. I wanted to do something a little bit more than that. Uh, and, and so I knew that I wanted to maybe look at field work. But there's also all these documentary accounts online and there's videos. So I, again, I knew that I had to look at all these things to get a contemporary image of it. And the advantage there is that they all have their different uh, limitations and strengths, right? Like if I'm conducting field work, this is great. I could get a personal experience of the site. I could check out the environment, maybe even see some people like behaving in that environment. But you don't really get like the same behind the scenes picture that you might get if you look at people's accounts online. Uh, like on YouTube, for example, you know, a lot of this is, has been posted and you really get a good sense of what goes on even when we're not around. So kind of comparing these different sources of data to each other is, is actually pretty typical in the social sciences, of course. Uh, this is methodological triangulation. Uh, that wasn't so much the problem once I figured out that's what I wanted to do. The real problem was simply the quantity uh, of data that I was trying to mess with. So uh, again, Classically, legend tripping study tends to focus on a single case study, like a single legend in a single location, like, you know, this local haunted cemetery. And even that you could dive really deep in today. And, and there was like a rabbit hole. Every time I found a new case, you know, I could keep reading about it. I could go visit, I could watch videos. And at some point you have to say enough is enough because I also wanted to compare lots of different case studies instead of just doing the single case study approach, almost more like an ethnology, if you like. And uh, that's where it really got to be quite involved. You know, I had uh, something like over 100 different like legends that I was specifically looking at with field work and all this, uh, and then all these different sources for each of those. And then what to do with all these field notes, what to do with all these saved web pages and photos and things like that. And it wasn't until I, I really started diving into the analysis process that I started noticing patterns that I had a better way to organize all these data and not feel so overwhelmed by that. And part of that you can see actually in the, the structure of the book now. So the different chapters sort of reflect some of those themes and different sub-themes within those chapters. Thank you. 
I think it's a, writing this book must be a very interesting and exciting process. So before diving into the, exi the exciting legend trips, we will first talk about some basic knowledge in this book, some keywords, and also the analytic framework. So first of all, for folklorists, ostension is a concept to understand the power of words. And from my understanding, ostension tells us how words or narratives or stories has the power to shape our minds and actions. So could you please elaborate more on this concept to our audiences who might not be very familiar with this concept and how do you use it to interpret the phenomena of legend tripping? Yeah, definitely. So uh, ostension is another one of these things that we're all actually familiar with to some extent, but we don't really think about it that much because we, we don't have to typically, right? It's uh, like you said, it's a form of communication, just like how words are kind of a form of communication. And just to backtrack a bit so to compare these two, uh, words are, of course, symbols, right? They're used arbitrarily to represent something else. Like if I want to talk about uh, an elephant, I could use the word elephant. And it's very handy and convenient to use those words as a symbolic representation. Uh, a stench is a little different. So instead of using some symbol to represent a thing that I want to communicate about, I have to present the thing itself. This is how it's a stench self. It's showing. Uh, so for example, every semester I do advising for my students. And let's say a student comes to my office to talk about course selection for the spring or graduate school or something. And I notice they're not writing anything down and that, you know, that gets me worried because they, they're going to forget. I could say to them, would you like a pen? Or instead I could simply reach into my desk drawer, pull one out and then offer it to them without any words at all, conveying a pretty similar meaning. Uh, that's got some advantages to it. It's also got some disadvantages. Like if I wanted to talk about the elephant, I would have to materialize an elephant. But in any case, this is a, actually a really old form of communication. It's got a lot of uses to it. And uh, the concept as it is seriously studied probably just goes back to semiotics and that discipline. But it was adapted by folklorists a couple of decades ago, uh, a few decades ago at this point, to study specifically legends, uh, although you could study some other narrative forms with it as well. And the idea here is that we could tell legends, we can narrate them, and that's what many folklorists kind of focused on for a long time, but we could also show legends, we could perform them or participate in them in some way, and this is also a form of communicating about them, you know, show rather than tell. Uh, sometimes this communication, this showing is in earnest, where I'm really trying to recreate some part of it. Sometimes it's just sort of like a jest, like when you act out part of a movie that you saw the next day. But it's in pretty important either way. So uh, when we think about legend tripping, then it's really a form of ostension where the legend is recounting, again, some form of past event that supposedly occurred and that allegedly elicited supernatural response to something the protagonist does. And we could try to act it out. We could go into that setting, whatever it might be, whether it's, uh, you know, the, the cemetery down the street, whether it's the, uh, a dark bathroom to try to summon Bloody Mary or whatever else. And then we copy the behaviors that were narrated or that were discussed in that legend to see if we could produce a similar result. We see uh, ghost hunters do this all the time, for example, like on TV, right? Where first they, they narrate the claims of a case, and then they go try to reproduce things that supposedly got that supernatural response in the past. This, therefore, is that it's important to study for all these cases as part of the legend itself. And it also became part of my method where I go to a lot of these locations and I'd also try to act out some of these, these practices, both to sort of get into the mindset, to try to understand what people are doing there, 
but also to try to get a sense of what they're experiencing. And sometimes you could actually solve uh, the case. <laughs> you know, like if you go to a, a location where they're saying, if you use an electromagnetic field reader, you're going to detect spirits. And you know, you could bust one of these things out. It's a real device. And you could often find wiring or something like that that is actually responsible for that same result. So it's actually an important methodological as well as conceptual tool when you're investigating urban legends. Well, it is very interesting to know that Ostension is both an analytical concept and also part of your methodology. It's very interesting. And so in this book, you analyze as well as the structure of this book, I think, follow the theory of rite of passage. So this theory, I think, has already been very influential and, you know, important in today's social science, especially in anthropology, in folkloristics, and also I see some cases in film studies. But maybe we have some audiences who don't know much about uh, Van Gennep and his theory. So could you please tell us more about a rite of passage and why do you choose it as your analytical framework? Yeah, that's a good idea. Uh, so a rite of passage to kind of summarize is a social ritual. It's used to mark some sort of important transitions uh, in an individual's life relative to their community. So uh, the passage from childhood to adulthood is the one that most frequently comes to mind. But it could be some other change in social status, like the change from from being single to being married uh, or something else along those lines. Uh, as you mentioned, the the first really important study in this regard was Arnold Van Gennep's uh, The Rites of Passage was the name of the book. Uh, later, it was developed by a number of other researchers, like the anthropologist Victor and Edith Turner. They applied it to pilgrimage, which follows a similar structure. But yeah, this serves as uh, sort of the underlying logic of the book as well. Uh, these are important because, uh, again, they inform individual identity, but they're also an important thing because they clarify social organization, what everybody's role is in a community. And uh, Van Gennep, as well as his later articulation, suggested that there are like these three stages of a rite of passage. First, you have to be separated from your usual social circumstances. Then you experience these, these liminal rites that are supposed to strip you of your previous identity. And for a time, you, you basically have no identity as far as that society is concerned. And then you have to ultimately be reincorporated into the community with a new status, with new obligations, uh, and with people relating to you in a different way. Now, uh, folklorists took this idea and applied it to rites of passage. Excuse me, they applied it to legend tripping because the legend trip is, again, sort of this um, is an interesting activity, and it's useful to have some sort of theoretical or conceptual idea to interpret it. And so they said, maybe this is kind of like one of those rites of passage where you separate from your normal everyday life. You go to some strange liminal location and then you experience something profound there and then you come back somehow changed from it. And I think there's some utility to that. But I, as I discussed in the book, I'm not totally convinced that's actually the case, really, at least not entirely. Uh, there's a few problems with this, uh, not the least of which is the fact that it's not exactly clear what social transition is being made when you go to the haunted cemetery or the you go Bigfoot hunting or whatever else. So that's a little problematic. And there's some other differences there as well. There's there's really no social consensus about what legend tripping is, whereas there should be for a rite of passage. Uh, there, there's there's some important distinctions of the sort. So instead, I think people probably engage in legend tripping for different reasons, which makes sense. Just like any other activity in society, we might do it for different reasons, depending on our own you know motivations, our interests. It looks like some folks, they go legend tripping, well, just for fun. It's something to do. Some people do it maybe specifically for the excitement or the sense of fear, like you might go to like a Halloween style thematic haunted house or take a roller coaster. 
you might go on one to prove that you're brave. If there's dangers in this haunted location, I could prove how brave I am to my friends because I'm willing to face those dangers. Uh, but there's also a more serious side to it, I think. Not to downplay the earnestness of some of those, but this could actually be, for many people, uh, a serious investigation into some of life's mysteries, such as the big one. Is there life after death? You know, trespass here and find out. Uh, or we could maybe get a sense that we're doing something important and meaningful by, by investigating these areas because the legend themselves gives them such significance. Uh, but in any case, the meaning, whatever it might be for that individual, is going to be sort of ambiguous. It's going to be negotiated as part of the process. It's not like there's a, a tribal elder or a church official nearby to tell you exactly how to go about doing this activity uh, or what it means afterwards. Okay, thank you for your answer. So let's start to let's start to talk about the content of the book. So for me, I think the most creative and the most important part of your analytic framework in this book is your emphasis on the preparatory stage of legend tripping. So you show us that the preparation before the trip actually plays a vital role in separating the trippers from their everyday routines and also to help them to get into the right, the correct mood. So what makes you decide to give particular attention to this preparation stage? And could you please tell us why is it important? Yeah, so the preparation stage was something that just kind of uh, emerged in the course of when I was going through the data trying to make sense of it. It wasn't something that I was expecting to find bef beforehand, you know, kind of emerged inductively. And to think about its significance, I, I think it's worth going forward, actually, thinking about what these legend trippers are generally trying to achieve. And that is, well, they want to have a supernatural or otherwise uncanny experience, right? They want to see if those legend claims are true. When you look at the accounts of legend trips, most of the time they seem like they succeed, right? They've experienced, they report experiencing something that they interpret as potentially supernatural and therefore is confirmation of the claims of the legend. However, a lot of these claims are actually not terribly dramatic. You know, you watch like horror films, all this crazy stuff is happening, the walls are bleeding, people's heads are spinning around. Uh, real life paranormal experiences are, are very rarely like that. It's much more frequently uh, a strange sound, a strange feeling, uh, maybe seeing something out of the corner of your eye. But it's typically enough for people to say that, you know, I went here looking for this and this is confirmation. Now, you experience things like this all the time, however, right? We always see things maybe out of the corner of our eyes. Uh, maybe there's birds flying outside of my window. There's always noises that are unaccounted for. And most of the time we do a good job of filtering those things out. They don't really matter. They're not that interesting. So we have to do something different during the course of a legend trip to turn those into something more than just everyday background noise to get our attention and to interpret it that way. And this is what I was uh, arguing that the preparatory step does whether or not participants are fully aware of that. Uh, to, to summarize it, this is a, a stage during the course of a legend trip. You've heard some legends, you've decided that you want to go investigate them, but you're not actually there at that location yet. It's all the stuff that has, to, that has to happen in between those two moments of deciding to investigate and actually being there on the scene. So this could be reviewing the components of a legend to figure out what exactly its claims are and how you're going to test them maybe packing some materials you might need, either just practical stuff like putting gas in the car, packing a snack, or things that might be necessary to call up the spirits, you know, like a, like a Ouija board or uh, uh, one of those EMF devices I mentioned, or something along those lines. 
And then there's the travel itself where you're moving through space away from your normal environment to this the site of alleged encounter, as well as perhaps some challenges or ordeals you might face along the way, much like a rite of passage where there's, there's ordeals that the initiates have to go through. Uh, for legend trips, they tend to be different, like the difficulty in finding the right spot. You know, which tree is the haunted tree? You know, that sort of thing. And so all these activities together, they kind of help get us out of our mindset. They help prime us for the adventure to come and they get us ready to entertain at least the possibility that something spooky might happen, even if in our everyday life, we're not, you know, totally interested or, or think about that stuff. Uh, one example I talk about in the book is how people like to, uh, like ghost hunters, for example, they like to pack extra batteries because ghost lore says that ghosts like to drain the juice from batteries. So simply by packing an extra set of batteries with me, some part of me is already preparing psychologically for the possibility of encounter and then an encounter that might drain those batteries. And I'm getting ready for those to serve as the proof of that encounter. Uh, and pretty much everything else works that way too. So in other words, again, even when it seems like it could just be the sort of prosaic preparatory activity, it's all about psychologically priming oneself to expect something to happen. And if you have other people around you doing the same thing, there's going to be a sociological component of this too, where we're going to kind of uh, build off of each other's fear and anticipation, our expectancy. And in fact, this really is expectancy effect that something could and will happen once we get there. Thank you. I think your your emphasis on the preparation stage must be a very important contribution to this field, basically. And so the next question is about ambiguity. So in this book, as far as I can see, you actually illustrate that the feature of ambiguity plays a role in any successful legend trip. So first, a legend must have an open and an incomplete end. And second, the encounter in the legend trait must be ambiguous and mysterious. So people do not actually know for sure what is the meaning of their uh, encounter with the paranormal. And third, I think the meaning of the paranormal encounter, you know, is also open for the participant to read and reread after their actual trip. And so it is that I think in the book, it is the absence of consistency and coherency makes a legend trip have the proper mood and finally be successful. So how can we understand this importance of ambiguity in legend tripping? Yeah, uh, ambiguity was a theme that, like you said, popped up pretty much at every stage of the research. It seemed to play an important role uh, in multiple ways for each of those stages. This, this lack of clarity in the whole process uh, individual clarity, but also a lack of social consensus where different people can't really agree on exactly what's happening either. Uh, the legend itself, like you said, is typically ambiguous, full of holes, unclear meaning. The experience of the supernatural or the otherwise uncanny is strange. Like what exactly was it? What happened? What did it mean? Every stage of the process, even afterwards when we argue about it, you know, what happened? Did it really happen? What do we make of this? How does it affect us? There's, there's really no clarity or consensus whatsoever. So in other words, ambiguity, it serves an important role in stimulating that initial interest in the legend. It, it kind of grabs our attention. It enables us to have a supernatural encounter, even if it's really no more uh, seemingly than, than a gust of wind or a sound. Uh, but it could be stranger than that, too. And, and it motivates that intense discussion that is a part of legend tripping, especially after the encounter where, where everybody says, you know, what was that? What did you see? What happened? And they're trying to make sense of it, but they're probably not going to be terribly successful in doing so. So by being ambiguous, because it's ambiguous, nothing is ever really settled with legend tripping. It's always open to interpretation. 
And it's also always open to change. So we see this quite a bit, like if we follow uh, a particular legend cycle over time, parts of it change, people experience new things, uh, other people can test what happened or its claims in the first place. Uh, and this could be an important kind of motivator for keeping them fresh and up to date as well. Uh, so to put it another way, like why does this all happen? Well, the ambiguity because of its nature is cognitively unsettling, right? People don't like ambiguous situations like that. We want to be able to put things with, with names or categories or to somehow explain them in our minds. And as long as we can't do so, we're going to be uncomfortable with it. We're going to grapple it. We're going to want to resolve it. But this ambiguity, it, it also serves as sort of a resource. It's not just a problem, meaning it's flexible because these different moments in the legend cycle are, are not fixed. They're open to interpretation and contestation. We could kind of shape them and change them to suit our needs or our desires or our motivations uh, from moment to moment. And that's kind of cool, right? This is like I was saying, different people might engage in, in legend tripping for different reasons. But then again, we also encounter the problematic side of it. So on the tail end, it will still ultimately remain unsettled despite our attempts to interpret to make sense to resolve that ambiguity. And so other people might come along, you know, even if I believe what I experienced was true and I'd share that experience with other people, someone else might come along and contest it one way or the other. And then the cycle continues all over again. The, the significance of this, I think, can't really be overstated again for the process where, where it has this end result of making the entire thing very flexible, uh, very adaptive, very resistant to falsification. So if you're trying to say, no, you didn't really experience a ghost, for example, you could always fall back on some other component of it. It increases the appeal because now it's even more mysterious because of this ambiguity uh, where the debate itself could wrap people in. And it increases opportunities for participation, which is an important component of, of extension, like we were saying. Uh, because again, since something is never settled and always subject to interpretation or contestation, there's always opportunities for somebody to get involved, uh, to try to insert themselves into the narrative uh, or, or to resolve that narrative in some way. By the way, all of this, again, pretty much distinguishes most of the moments in the legend trip from a rite of passage. There is a degree of ambiguity in a rite of passage, but it's it's largely confined to that one moment of liminality at the middle. And even that is planned out. The rest of this for legend tripping, not so much. It's, it's very much an emergent process. Well, thank you for your answer. So now let's talk about a more theoretical question. So I think... I want to know more about the relationship between legend and tripping because theoretically, I think legend tripping includes both legend and a tripping. So a, le a, le a legend trip without a legend is nearly impossible. But in reality, I think this connection seems not necessary in some cases, such as in the case uh, you mentioned in the book, like the Gontong Cemetery in Nogata, Connecticut. So it reminds me of the debate of the relationship between material and ideology in sociology and in other, you know, socialist theories. So in the Marxist tradition, the material comes first to ideology and ideology is basically, you know, built on material. But, you know, in more, more, more recent ethnographic material, we can see this relationship is actually more complicated. And I think, you know, similar situation also exists in legend tripping, in the relationship between legend and tripping. So in brief, what is their relationship between legend and a trip, in your opinion? Yeah, so uh, like I said earlier, is uh, to, to overly simplify it, right? It's easy to say that the legend is like the verbal or, or the conceptual component, and the tripping is the behavioral component. But like I think you're getting in your question, that's 
kind of a misunderstanding. It's useful to think of them that way, but it's also incorrect. Really, they're they're closely related. They're they're sides of the they're different sides of the same coin, right? They're all part of this broader social discourse that's being communicated verbally, ostensibly, or some other way, and they interact with each other uh, quite a bit. So, and I think about to understand is it's the the problem is that we typically misunderstand the nature of legend. Legend isn't like a narrative. It isn't like the fairy tales that I mentioned earlier or historical essay or something like that. It's it's really just social conversation. So it consists of all sorts of different things, uh, fragmentary claims, hearsay, rumors. Sometimes you get full narratives, especially when people try to like um, offer like a published version of a legend or something like that. Uh, or especially argument and debate. That's a, a major component of the legend process of legends as social discourse. So legend tripping, again, is kind of more of the behavioral element of all that social discourse, where rather than just verbally arguing about a claim that you've heard, you're going to go physically investigate it and in the process act it out yourself. It's another way, however, of simply participating in the same legend process. So this is why, to get to the other part of your question, why we could technically legend trip without a complete legend narrative. In, in fact, you rarely get a complete legend narrative, although they do indeed exist. Uh, all you really need are various elements of legend discourse, and probably the more fragmentary, the better, actually. Uh, I call this a generalized legend tripping in the book, where rather than responding to a complete tale, you're responding kind of generically to the logic of these sorts of things. Uh, a good example of this is contemporary ghost hunting where often these folks who are interested in investigating haunted places, they don't need knowledge that a specific location is haunted. It just has to fit their general expectations based on previous fragmentary accounts of what a typically a haunted place is like. So is it old? Is it abandoned? Is it scary looking in some way? There's lots of characteristics like that that play a role, and we could, we could speculate about where those characteristics come from in turn. Likewise, when you get there, Normally, you would want to reenact something that supposedly happened there in the past to call up the ghosts, but you don't actually need that. You could simply use some similar ritual that worked somewhere else. So, you know, I hear ghosts respond when you antagonize them. Let me just start calling this ghost names and it might respond. So that's not reacting to a specific legend. It's, again, reacting to this general uh, knowledge, this general cultural legacy or heritage of legendary. And of course, this stuff always constantly changes because I could try something new in a new location, which changes the, the legend associated with that, which then someone could come along and try to emulate. Uh, Guntown, like you mentioned, is an interesting case in point. So Guntown Cemetery, it's a fairly small historic cemetery, like you said, in Navitao, Connecticut. It's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a quaint old cemetery, but there's nothing particularly impressive about it. It's not like it has famous people buried there. Uh, or huge monuments. It's not particularly scary necessarily, although all cemeteries to some extent could contribute that environmentally to the idea of a legend. Uh, but people could still go legend tripping there, and lots of people do. It's actually surprisingly common, despite the fact that there's no single legend about the place, you know, a specific event that happened that people are trying to investigate. In the case of Guntown, it's not a single legend, and it's not the environment. It's actually lots of fragmentary legends. So if you were to, to simply Google this, you would come up with like many, many claims people have of what they experienced there. So it could be an apparition by the bat wall. 
It could be the, the metal gates closing. It could be uh, anomalous electromagnetic readings. It could be ghost dogs across the woods. Uh, all sorts of different claims associated with this place. And so all of these kind of reflect this disparate nature of the legend cycle, but they also reinforce it because, again, now there's no single coherent narrative that's being conveyed about it. It's simply feeding back into this general idea of what happens with legends, the, the many, many ways we could investigate them. And as long as they follow that logic, people can and do seem to have something they think was an experience there. Fantastic. And I also think in your book, you perfectly illustrate this very complicated relationship. So, so in this book, you argue that rather than de-ritualization or Weberian disenchantment in the religious realm, Latin tripping should more be understood as a, as a result or byproduct of religious deinstitutionalization and the tendency of the individualization in our modern society. So why is Latin tripping increasingly popular in our contemporary world? And what is the future of Latin tripping, in your opinion? Yeah, so admittedly, this part's uh, a little bit more speculative, trying to draw some conclusions from be, you know, from the data that we actually have available. But, and there's also a lot of ongoing research here in other fields, like a lot of survey research uh, showing trends, demographic trends, for example, what people believe over time. Uh, but one thing that seems pretty clear is that despite many predictions, not so much these days, but you know, in the 1800s and, and through the 1950s and things like that, for many social scientists, uh, that predicted that superstitious would eventually go away, that belief in the supernatural would go away, that religion would go away, uh, replaced by rationality, replaced by you know science and these sorts of things. And, and certainly there have been transitions and changes and things like that, but certainly also we have not seen those things go away at all. We know superstition, for example, is alive and well. Uh, people are still knocking on wood every day you know, when they're trying to prevent something from befalling them. Uh, so it hasn't gone away, but like I said, it's definitely transformed. And this shouldn't be surprising either, right? The only, the only constant is change. And one of the changes that seems to be feeding into the, the popularity of legend tripping, or at least the form that legend tripping is taking these days, is indeed this, this process in, in many societies like the United States of turning away from conventional religious denominations. This doesn't mean necessarily that people are turning away from spirituality. In fact, we see, you know, belief quite alive and well, but we simply see the sort of deinstitutionalization of it and a greater individualization of belief. I like to think of this as kind of like the a process that began a long time ago. Uh, if nothing else, this is this is at least echoes of the Great Awakening that is still going on. And when you see this greater individualization and decreasing institutionalization of belief. This opens up room for what is by definition unconventional beliefs and practices, because all that really means are things that aren't authorized by an, an overarching entity, an authority, an institution of some sort. Uh, and so this is this is part of what I think is going on. And of course, another element of it is the growth in size, strength and reach of popular culture. This, to me, seems to be partly displacing some of the influence of traditional institutions, where a lot of us get our, our knowledge, or at least things that we think are true, and our beliefs to varying extents from, from TV, from social media, maybe from something that we read from the culture industry more broadly. So, for example, you know those, those ghost hunting shows or, or monster hunting shows that I talked about, uh, these, are, these are kind of mystery mongering shows where they, they amp up the plausibility of some of these beliefs and kind of project them. 
and, and disseminate them in the process. A lot of folks, this is how they first learn about, you know, paranormal claims. And social media is a, is a whole nother thing entirely, right? Uh, we could we could see how in part it's doing some of the same things that traditional media are doing, including, you know, print and TV. But it's also simultaneously offering new new advantages, new venues for the legend process. So we can increasingly debate things online. We could share evidence, quote unquote, evidence of things online. We could record an entire legend trip and post it online and have people debate it in the comments, which is something else that I studied uh, as part of this project. And of course, all this serves as a sort of social proof. If other people believe it, if other people claim to have seen it, it lends it the appearance of, of greater potential validity. Uh, again, as social proof, not as something that would pass as scientific evidence. And, you know, we could infer a lot of, from this as well. Like, this seems to reflect other themes in our society, like crisis of authority, or maybe there's greater distrust in institutions, greater distrust in authorities, sometimes for good reasons, sometimes not for good reasons. But instead, this kind of the, the desires that those that the needs that those fulfill are still there. So in this case, we might just kind of look elsewhere for information or our, our desire for maybe ironically, like a more direct or unmediated experience rather than just watching a TV show about the supernatural. Maybe I want to have that experience for myself. And so uh, the, the, TV, the TV shows, the websites, they kind of encourage this behavior as well. And all of it seems equally legitimate to many people because uh, perhaps lapse is an epistemology or flawed methodology, but it seems to offer uh, a window for people to investigate these things on their own rather than relying on their church or their state or whatever else. Well, thank you for your answer. I think based on your answer, we have the we, we can believe that in the future, legend tripping will be more and more popular and not only in America, but also, I think, across the globe, as I can see something happen in East Asia. So as we are approaching the end of today's podcast, the final question is, what's next? What is your ongoing or future project? Yeah, there's lots of unanswered questions, a lot of things that I'd like to explore. Uh, not sure how many I'll ultimately wind up being able to get around to, uh, but I talk about some of them in the book. And then there's a few others that I'm really hoping to get into as well. Uh, mostly related topics at this point. For example, um, one thing I talk about in the book is this kind of uh, increasing rationalization of the legend trip, where we see basically economic forces really taking an increasing role in it. So like, you know, a tourism industry, uh, marketing, like we mentioned with like, you know, beer marketing and things like that. And these kind of, you know, they, they, they play with beliefs. They play with these more traditional experiences and simultaneously rationalize it in an interesting way to make money. And I don't think, you know, it's exactly the same thing once they get involved, but it's not totally distinct either. So there's a lot more room for research there. I want to explore others, uh, uh, both the, the historical and also cross-cultural concerns with legend tripping. I don't think it's by any means, you know, unique to any particular society, but I would also expect that it's specifics vary across social setting. And I don't think there's been enough kind of systematic work investigating that. Uh, I think that would be really cool to look into. Uh, there's also dealing with like institutionalization, like we're, you know, we we're just talking about how deinstitutionalization might be feeding into legend tripping, but simultaneously there seems to be this kind of backlash amongst legend trippers where they uh, often try to institutionalize. You see this with um, ghost clubs and societies, for example, or monster hunting groups where they adopt the trappings of formal organization and bureaucracy, uh, seemingly an attempt to, to achieve that authority status or that expertise or, or something along those lines that is otherwise lacking in the endeavor. 
Uh, but again, exactly what's going on and why is it, it remains an open question that I think would be really cool to engage in. Uh, and it also, you know, just to name one more, for instance, just to branch out a little bit and exactly what, you know, what counts as legend tripping and what its impacts are in, in related areas. So for instance, again, traditionally folklorists mostly focused on haunted places, uh, ghosts, curses, stuff like that. But uh, as I touch on in the book, I think we could extend this to, to other very important and interesting things these days, like, like monster hunting cryptids, uh, UFOs, conspiracy theories, all these sorts of things. They, they very often follow a similar sort of course. And again, I wouldn't expect it to be exactly the same as a ghost or a curse. But, but I think systematic analysis and investigation is A, fun, and B, important to check these things out and see really why they've also become so important and popular these days. Well, thank you a lot for sharing with us your, you know, your ongoing project and future plans. I think it sounds amazing and we definitely look forward to having you back in the future. So just out of curiosity, I want to know, are you still participating in legend trips nowadays? <laughs> yeah, so primarily still though as a sort of like this mixed researcher and an interested individual thing. But yeah, I'm, I'm whatever, wherever I go, I, I try to immerse myself in as much local folklore as I can and visit as many local locations as I can. And because my interests are, you know, not just like ghosts, but but monsters, UFOs, curses, anything, it's so far flung, it's kind of hard to keep up with everything. It's really cool. I'm also interested in UFOs and conspiracy theories. So in the future, maybe we can meet in person and maybe we can join, a, you know, a legend trip again, you know, in the future. I'm Definitely. really looking forward to it. Thank you. So, Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much again for coming today. My pleasure. Thanks so much for the time. I love talking about this stuff. Well, I think the pleasure is all mine. So today we discussed the new book by Jeffrey Davis Cow, If You Should Go at Midnight, Legends and Legend Tripping in America, published by the University Press of Mississippi. This is an interesting and thought-provoking book, and I recommend it to any audience interested in contemporary folklore, urban legends, and cultural sociology. Thank you listening for listening. Thank you listening to New Books Network in Folklore, and we will see you next time.